Welcome to Pennsylvania in Focus, powered by the Center Square and a production of America's Talking Network. I'm Alan Wooten, Managing Editor at the Center Square Newswire Service. To support fine podcasts like this one, please donate. You can click the link in the show description. You can find all of the Center Square's great podcasts at americastalking.com. You can also link to the Center Square podcast through the podcast drop-down menu at thecentersquare.com. We are recording on Thursday, February 16, 2023. With us today is Kristen Smith, our Pennsylvania editor for the Center Square based in Harrisburg. Anthony Hennon, our Pennsylvania reporter, is on assignment today. Kristen, it's wonderful to be back on Pennsylvania Focus podcast and guest hosting. Thank you for the invite. And how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Enjoying uh, a break from my hosting duties, that's for sure. <laughs> We'll try, we'll try to make it go smoothly for you. Anthony is on assignment today, so let's go ahead and quell any rumors that he, he fled out of Philly because of the Super Bowl on Sunday. But uh, great season for the Eagles, and we de- definitely congratulate the team and their fans. Today we lead off with a story that originates in Ohio and spills across the state line. We're talking about the train derailment in East Palestine, where about 50 cars were involved on February 3. Uh, It is an unfortunate incident and one that has gained momentum this week, in part because of a spread of false information through social media. Uh, A couple of facts that we'd like to lay out for our listeners, uh, for those who may not be familiar with the geography. Uh, East Palestine is about 20 to 25 miles southwest of Newcastle and a little over 50 miles northwest of Pittsburgh. East Palestine is due west of Big Beaver and it's north of the Ohio River. Uh, there were no injuries when the train crashed, but fears rose about a potential explosion involving five cars that had toxic vinyl chloride. Vinyl chloride is a colorless, hazardous gas. A decision was made to burn and release against the threat of an uncontrolled explosion. So that burn was done on Monday, February the 6th. That was about three days after the crash. Uh, we're more than a week later, and now the story is gaining momentum nationwide. So, Kristen, to begin, there's different accounts on the decision for the burn, and then there's the aftermath, the health concerns, and there are varying opinions on that as well. But as best we can tell, uh, as we begin to record today, the centersquare.com in your reports is the only outlet giving the railroad side of the decision for the burn. What can you share with us today? Uh, We did get a lengthy statement from Norfolk Southern yesterday regarding their opinion of some of the scathing comments that came out of Governor Josh Shapiro's office the day before. Uh, They recommitted to um, supporting the residents of the area and mentioned or reiterated that they were on the scene within hours of the accident and that have they've been dedicating a lot of time and resources into handling it properly. They did not specifically address the criticism that they moved too quickly to reopen the rail line and get this cleaned up. I think we'll get into that a little bit later, but their response was that they're doing all that they can. They're on scene and they won't leave until this gets sorted out. That sounds good. Uh, One of the things that we heard out of Ohio was that um, Norfolk Southern uh, the federal folks and the state folks were all in the same room together. And that really just doesn't seem to be what we're, we're hearing now as well. Yeah, same room, uh, but not on the same team, it seems like. Uh, Governor Josh Shapiro, like I said, I think it was Monday or 
Tuesday, perhaps, he released a letter publicly that was sent to the CEO of Norfolk Southern, and it was signed by several different lawmakers and Pima, I believe, um, detailing their frustration with the emergency response led by Norfolk Southern. Uh, Governor Shapiro laid out a, a series of best practices that state and local officials follow when these kind of accidents occur. And the main and top line response is that everybody forms a team and develops strategies and responses together. Shapiro is saying that Norfolk Southern took their personnel and immediately sequestered them from the rest of the team, at least from Pennsylvania's perspective. And they kind of strategized how they were going to deal with this mess and brought it back to state and local officials. And when there was an opportunity to consider other plans that might have kept the railroad uh, line shut down longer, but might have been considered safer uh, long term, they were not open to hearing that or considering those. Is is, is it to be clear, um, the when we say state level folks who were involved in the meeting, that would only be Ohio, would not Pennsylvania. Was Pennsylvania represented uh, in, in in that decision to your knowledge? They say that they were there, but not represented. Uh, Governor Shapiro was briefed on this. The Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency was involved with it. Even some senators and state reps from the area said that they were involved in the conversations and the planning of this. And even like I said, even though they were physically present, their input was not considered seriously from what the contents of the letter seemed to suggest. Sounds like there was, there was a, a lot of a lot of bodies uh, would have been there uh, if you have two states and then you have, you know, federal and, and the railroad folks as well. Well, and as you, you know, pointed out at the top of the show, this area is right along the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. And typically from a Pennsylvania perspective, that is a region that's seen a lot of environmental hazardous uh, situations unfold over the last two decades. Usually it's in relation to natural gas drilling, but these um, controlled release that the railroad did uh, about 10 days ago now, that was something that required an evacuation of residents within a specific one mile by two mile radius. Uh, there's a lot of uproar in the surrounding or communities stretching towards Pittsburgh. In fact, there was a town hall last night and the room was packed and people raising concerns about why weren't more residents warned of how dangerous the situation was? How can they be sure that these chemicals haven't leached into the air, leached into the ground? The EPA for its uh, response has said they begin, they've tested different homes and levels in different homes and they haven't found anything. Over 450 as of this this recording they, they've looked into. But that's to say nothing for the long-term impacts. And Norfolk Southern was actually criticized heavily because despite this town hall, they weren't there. So on one hand, they're saying we are committed to supporting these residents and making sure the cleanup is as safe and efficient as possible. But then when it came to responding to some of the concerns of the very same residents, they were nowhere to be found. And uh, I know that our reporter in Ohio, J.D. Davidson, had uh, posted a story within the last hour or so before we began to record um, there were some uh, w some water testing that's been done. Re results were released late yesterday, um, and the drinking water in the town is fine. Uh, so that, that's that's good news uh, and everything. Um, it, it, 
Kristen, you you and I both have been in the news business for a long time. Um, indeed, it, it was more than a room last night. It was a whole gym uh, and it was packed. Uh, it, it, it absolutely was. And so I, my question to you um, that we might bat around is, um, you know, you see these things happen. There's a there's a lag time that we've seen in this particular incident. Um the residents there are the the number one concern and and what's going to happen with them and everything and um I, I would dare say quite frankly a lot of them are hearing things that they really don't know a whole lot about and they're relying on people to give them straight answers uh would you agree absolutely when it comes to these environmental issues it's very complex and there's often no simple way to explain What's gone on? What danger does it pose? At what point is it considered safe? People hear things like vinyl chloride and the fact that those train cars that were derailed could have exploded and uh, released toxic fumes and deadly shrapnel into the region. I mean, you can hardly blame them for being terrified and confused about what this means. Absolutely. And from a from a personal perspective, it's hard to imagine that something that volatile in a controlled release situation that it's just fine after a few days. And and for what it's worth, if there is no adverse health effects, I think widely that would be considered a very lucky outcome. But you can't blame residents for not trusting that explanation. And even Governor Shapiro said, yeah, right now there's no adverse health effects, but that doesn't mean we're not going to hold the railroad accountable for this. And that doesn't mean he's not ruling out problems down the road. And so... The misinformation that's spreading, although it's making residents more fearful, it still brings up a lot of unanswered questions that reporters themselves don't even know exactly how to parse out. Right. I mean, <laughs> you and I both know uh, we we typically get into a news cycle and we need to be an expert on it for that news cycle. And then after that, we got to go be an expert on something else. And that's <laughs> that's what we signed up for. But that ain't, that ain't exactly easy. Um, I had an editor once describe it to me as imagine a dartboard with all these different subjects. And any given day, you just pick up a dart and throw it and where it lands. That's where you have to become an expert. And that is entirely what it's about. I didn't tell my reporters that, but that's pretty much right on. <laughs> he, he was telling you the truth. Um, the... the I want to go back to something you said in your response a while ago. I mean, there's a reason why this thing was labeled hazardous. There's a reason why this is um, how we transport um, something like, uh, you know, vinyl chloride. There's a reason why it gets transported. there's There's a reason why it gets labeled hazardous. Is it only because it possibly could explode? I'm, I'm thinking it's probably a little more than that. Yeah, if it explodes or or something like what has happened now, then yes, there is there is a threat. Yes, there is a threat. Uh, I don't know enough to speak intelligently, uh, referring back to our just previous conversation, but there's a lot of volatile chemicals, substances, you know, gases, things like that, that are transported by rail. Long, long distances. And this is something that uh, has been a controversy for a long time. I think when you look towards the uh, natural gas uh, debate, advocates are arguing that that's why pipelines are safer versus traveling by rail. I think this is another example of that. Uh, I'm not aware of where where they want to go with this, whether train car is the best we have or if there is another option for this. Um, when I asked Norfolk Southern about the reason for why they would be 
transporting these chemicals over long distances by rail car. They didn't really give me an answer. In fact, they were very cagey and kind of referred me to the EPA and said that they could better answer my question. And so far, I'm still looking into it. But I'm assuming that... It sounds like a regulation, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And from from all perspectives, it seems like more regulation will be coming. Again, Governor Shapiro wants the, the Public Utility Commission and a federal commission that looks at railroad regulations and, and the transporting of dangerous chemicals, want them to review what what constitutes a safe uh, passage of these uh, chemicals through the continental United States. So there's a lot of opportunity on the horizon there for more stringent regulations to prevent this. And and to, to be honest, um, when's the last time we were talking about this kind of a chemical that was on a train that derailed? I mean, it, it's not like something that happens, you know, every day and, and that kind of thing. It is an anomaly because the train derailed, but it is a concern and there is a reason why they do the regulations they do. Um, and, at some point in the past, they suggest uh, someone a whole lot smarter than you and I uh, suggested the best way to move this from point A to point B is by a rail car. Um, and maybe the things have changed. We know technology has changed. <laughs> so there could be some other things Perhaps. that have changed as well. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the rarity of these accidents because I just saw before we began recording that there was another derailment in Michigan that involved a train car pulling hazardous chemicals. It's breaking news. So I'm not sure if it's a Norfolk Southern train or any of those details, but it's interesting that within this two week span, we've seen it happen twice. So it does raise the question of, do we have a better way to do this now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we hope our audience will check out the centersquare.com as we continue to uh, follow it and see what happens. I know that JD's story said that uh, the Ohio governor, Mike DeWine, is um, asking for FEMA's help. Um, he's asking the president for help. Um, I don't think it's been declared, declared a federal disaster area, which is what it would need to be for FEMA to, to go in and do anything. But uh, but we will follow that for our audience. And um, we hope that uh, they'll take a look at uh, the coverage from JD in Ohio as well to see what they're saying over there. A second story we want to dive into today was filed by Anthony Hennon on Monday, and it is about the emergency medical services system. Uh, some of our audience near Pittsburgh may have read it when the Post-Gazette shared Anthony's work uh, earlier today. Let me start with this quote from Crawford County Commissioner and Meadville Area Ambulance Service owner Eric Henry. Eric says, if they do nothing, this will collapse. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This system will collapse if nothing changes. Kristen, if you can, take Eric's quote a little further for us and explain uh, why is the emergency medical services system going to collapse and what's being done right now? Sure. So Pennsylvania's emergency medical service system, by nature, is incredibly fractured. And I think it's a case of... It is too expansive and too localized. And so for those who may not realize, we have over 2,500 municipalities in Pennsylvania, and a lot of them are carrying their own EMS services. Because of this, they're struggling with money, and they are at times duplicating resources. They're also having a really hard time recruiting people to be paramedics, given the fact that they could go 
work a higher paying job at Sheets, as Anthony reported. Uh, the pandemic didn't help, made that worse, made that struggle worse. They've advocated for a long time for more money to emergency, uh, emergency medical services. Um, but at this point, uh, officials are saying it's not just more money that we need. We need to revamp the system. We need to go more regional, maybe on a county by county basis to go from 2,500 municipalities to 67 counties. It might be a more effective approach, they say, to pull their resources and to, to kind of bridge these funding gaps. Because without it, emergency services will crumble. And along with it, the safety net that it provides to residents. Does do, do the do the counties in Pennsylvania have responsibility to pick up if a local, uh, either volunteer or paid uh, city EMS system says we don't have enough people, we can't do it. You know, I know they have um, they they have levels of technicians, you know, emergency technicians that have to be on the, on a truck that goes out, for example, you could have a driver, but you got to have this kind of a level if you're in the back and you got to have this other level, if it's, you know, at least that or something like that. So, uh, so if you have a community that, that, you know, they're, they don't have the people, they can't do the job, uh, are the counties ultimately responsible for that? Yeah, that's a good question that I, I don't know the answer to specifically. Okay. It's my understanding that I could imagine that that would vary by county and and their specific needs. I know when you're looking at other types of first responders, such as police, um, in a situation where a, a municipality doesn't have the available officers or manpower to respond, then, of course, the state police step in. So... Whether that stretches to emergency medical services, uh, my my feeling is no, that's not the case. But again, I don't I don't know enough to to respond appropriately. Yeah, and and I I've lived in different places, and I've seen it. Uh, to go back to your law enforcement example, I've seen it where the state police are responsible, and I've seen where it's like a county deputy level. It, it would be would be uh, the the first the first option there. But either way, somebody's going to end up paying because that is expensive stuff. And the one thing that I've seen where a county in, in, in localities where a county is the one that ultimately becomes responsible is whatever resources they have, they immediately get thin and they have to be very strategic in the way they position, um, you know, where they put personnel, where they put a truck, for example. Um, it, it could be that during a shift, a truck is just parked in the middle of no, what looks like the middle of nowhere, but it's actually strategically parked in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's some, uh, as Eric says, if it's going to collapse, I mean, there, are, there are some things that could happen. Uh, in other situations I've seen where it's just, you know, something happens, you call the nearest hospital and they roll a truck and that could be, yes. that could be incredible amount of wait time. Um, very, very scary stuff there. Um, and if you understand the the geography of Pennsylvania, there are some incredibly rural areas where a response time could be incredibly delayed just because of the nature of the of the layout, the the geography, the roads, traversing mountains, that sort of situation. And without a localized approach, you know, some of those calls, you have to wonder if those people stand a chance. What do we think is going to be happening next? What when when what's going to be done? What's what's going to is there? There probably isn't a silver bullet. Uh, because there was, I'm sure it would already been used. Uh, but but what happens next, and 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 what's what's some of the things that that you and Anthony have heard, or the hopes for what may happen next? So the state legislature in recent years has committed more funding to EMS uh, 
broadly. They say it's not enough and it doesn't make up for years of lacking support. So I think the first step and the most logical step is going to be asking for more money. And I don't know how effective that will be. There's going to be a lot of different interests vying for state money this year and and in the years to come, especially as that pandemic aid uh, evaporates. And now we're left with funding these services at a level that we probably wouldn't be at without that stimulus money. So EMS is really going to have to fight for that as they've done in the past. And so I think that's what we'll see. Now, the House Republican Policy Committee had a hearing this week where they they talked more in depth about first responder issues, not just from EMS, but also from police. And the police said that they are struggling to recruit and retain people as well. And it's creating a crisis in law enforcement. So it's not just EMS that they're going to have to grapple with of how to um, provide more financial support. And perhaps it's, this will be the, the genesis of a legislative change that will give the system a more balanced way of operating. But it's, we're in a kind of a holding pattern right now until Governor Shapiro announces his first budget and we'll see what his priorities are and whether EMS funding is one of those things. When does he announce that, by the way? I believe it's early March okay. uh, because Not it's long. his first year. Yeah, because it's his first year, it is delayed. Typically, governors announce the first week of February. They present their budget to the General Assembly. Uh, this year, it, I believe it's the first week of March. And if I recall right, uh, the, the outgoing governor still gives his recommendation before he left. And he did do that at, back in December, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yes. And it'll be very fascinating to see which of those priorities Shapiro clings to. He's really billed himself as a moderate who's focusing on very common sense reforms. Wolf was considered one of the most liberal governors in America for many years. So will he keep some of those priorities? It's anyone's guess. But Shapiro was attorney general for several years. And so he understands acutely the, the issues the funding issues that are plaguing police and first responders. So perhaps he'll ha- he'll bring a new perspective to that issue. Well, when you talk common sense, I mean, having folks to come get you if you're hurting, uh, I'm, I'm country. That's just, <laughs> you just yeah. need to be able to call somebody. Um, Kristen, thank you so much for your insights. That is all the time that we have. Uh, we encourage you to find news that matters for taxpayers of Pennsylvania at the centersquare.com. Uh, if you haven't been on our uh, state web webpage for them uh, this week, it is full of information. Uh, Kristen alluded to the uh, hiring problems for law enforcement. Um, Anthony has filed a story uh, this week on um, Philadelphia being among the hardest hit by a possible recession. Uh, they've also got information from uh, an audit. And Kristen took a look at the the house coming back in the session next week. So we hope you'll give those things a look. And if you uh, have questions about it, shoot us an email. Let us know. Uh, We do hope that you will want to support fine podcasts like this one. Please donate. You can click the link in the show description. This has been the Pennsylvania Focus Podcast, part of the America's Talking Network. Find all of the Center Squares podcasts at America's Talking Network. Dot com. For Kristen Smith, I'm Alan Wooten. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>